presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to the Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright. I am chairman of the board of Common Sense Institute. Thank you for joining us today. CSI just released a report on school finance and a bill that is being considered by the legislature to fix inequities in local revenues. Today's guests include CSI Mike A. Laprino, Free Enterprise Fellow, Dr. Brenda Botch-Dickhoner. Welcome, Brenda. Yes, thanks for having me. In addition to Dr. Brenda Botch-Dickhoner, we are joined by Leslie Colwell, Vice President of K-12 Education Initiatives with the Colorado Children's Campaign. Leslie, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Today, we'll discuss the complexities of the state's K-12 school finance system and what House Bill 21-1164 proposes to do and what it does not do. You can find background for the discussion in Brenda's latest report, Trying to Fix a Broken Education Finance System. It's really quite well written and very clear, and I would encourage all of you after listening to this to go to the site and read it. It's available on the CSI website. Well, let's get started. I think I can say for anybody listening to this that this is a sleeper legislation, I think, for most of us in the general public. Brenda, let's get started with the uh, first question. I understand that Colorado's education funding system is complex. We all know that. You told us about that in a previous report that you did. Can you give us a high-level overview of what the current problems are And what problems specifically is House Bill 1164 trying to address? Thanks, Earl. Yes, I'll give a a brief overview of our complicated education finance system. You know, I'll just start out with saying is broken in a lot of different ways. And that starts with how we collect revenues, which is quite inequitable. It continues with how we then allocate those revenues back to schools and districts through a very inefficient and outdated formula. And then we've got a few squeezes on the system that reduces the amount of education funding available. So things like the para system and then other state needs around healthcare and transportation, which are putting pressure on how much funds we have available for schools. Um, so on the revenue side, we have through a variety of uh, a long history and some factors uh, through Tabor and Gallagher that eventually our, our property tax system has become, the way we collect revenues for schools has become quite inequitable. So between 1993 and 2007, districts had to ratchet down their property tax rates as their assessed property valuations increased. Even if voters had already de-bruced or proved that the school district could keep revenues above the Tabor limit. So the result is that today in some districts such as Aspen, there are, they levy 4.4 mills for K-12 education. Other districts, such as Pueblo City, levy 27 mills. So taxpayers across the state are having unequal burdens in terms of how much they are having to pay taxes to support their schools. And so that's the revenue side of the equation. Uh, There's also, as I mentioned, a problem with how we then disperse those funds or allocate those funds to our schools. And right now, the state puts an outsized weight on district factors such as district size or cost of living and instead uh, at a higher value than they do over student needs. So things like the number of students with disabilities or English language learners. 
Um, even the way that the state funds at-risk students is flawed. It doesn't necessarily capture the true poverty levels within communities. Uh, so this bill, House Bill 21-1164, helps us start on a path of correcting the revenue side. So it's trying to address that patchwork system of property taxes and to get to a point where the state is not subsidizing artificially low mill levies. So it's trying to increase the local share contribution of some districts to be on par with other communities. What this bill does not do is address the funding formula or allocation side of, of the equation. I appreciate the explanation, but I'm going to push back a little bit if I could. Let's take Aspen, Eagle County, and let's take Ray, okay? You mentioned 4.4 mil levy versus 27 mil levy. If 4.4 mil levy on highly appreciated property ends up being the same amount per student as 27 mil levy on a lesser valued property, and that creates the same amount per student, what's wrong with that? Or does it? Yes. Yeah, so the current, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought it up. And the current mm -hmm. issue is that Aspen is, is, is raising quite a bit of revenue with 4.4 mils but they are still not what we would say entirely locally funded. So they're still getting subsidized, subsidized by the state currently before this, before this bill. So that's the current problem is that they are taking state dollars when they don't need those state dollars necessarily. And then what that does is reduces the amount of funding available for districts like Pueblo City or Lake County or other communities across the state that have lower property values. And so this bill tries to rectify that by saying Aspen needs to be increase their mills until they are close to totally locally funded or entirely locally funded. And that way they won't be relying on that state subsidy. Okay, so Cherry Creek School District, which has very nice uh, residential properties around it and uh, Eagle County and let's say, you know, Larimer County, some of the places where you have higher middle income people what you're saying is the state subsidization there is probably less needed than it is in Lyman or Burlington or Pueblo and places where you have lower property values. And this is an effort to try to correct that. Am I on, on point here? You got it. Yes. Okay. It sounds like there are big problems with the formula the state uses to allocate funds. In other words, the state's got money, then they allocate back. And you're saying that it somehow it just it doesn't quite work well enough. Tell us about your involvement in this legislation and why you believe it is important to make a policy change to revenue system now without also addressing the allocation formula. Maybe I'll start by just emphasizing the distinction that Brenda made between the revenue side of the school finance equation and the formula or the distribution side. Both sides of the school finance equation are problematic and you know I would argue perpetuate inequity. But the structural problem that House Bill 1164 seeks to address, as Brenda mentioned, is, is pretty squarely on the revenue side. And I really believe that that problem lays the foundation for all of our other problems in school finance. So just to you know, provide a little more detail on um, you know, what is our property tax problem here in Colorado, uh, it is that you know, the first, the property tax is the first layer of revenue for K-12 education and our system for collecting those dollars is arbitrary and unfair to taxpayers, and there's no good policy reason for that. So going back to the 1980s, local property tax rates, or what we call mill levies, were consistent across school districts. It was around 40 mills uh, that folks were paying. 
but today they vary wildly across the state. And so we have a range of 1.68 mills in one school district to 27 mills in 39 school districts. And so this means that, that some property owners pay tax rates that are 16 times higher than taxpayers that are sometimes literally in the school district next door. Um, and that's on properties of the same value. So, you know, I think sometimes it's helpful here to make a comparison to income tax. We have in Colorado a flat income tax system where everyone pays the same rate. It doesn't matter where you live or what your, your level of income is. That is not how our property tax system works. And in fact, we have what I would say is a quite regressive system here, meaning that um, you know, some of our most property and income poor districts, you know, the Lymans, the Greeleys, the Alamosas, um, our Pueblos, uh, have the highest base property tax rates. And then conversely, some of our most affluent communities in the state pay comparatively low mills. Um, and that patchwork of property tax rates is not the result of intentional policy choices that were made by lawmakers. It's not even a result of voter approval in individual school districts. So, um, you know, we argue that this inequitable system that we've ended up with is the result of a mistake that was made in the interpretation of Tabor many years ago by the Colorado Department of Education. You know, one of the problems here as well is that the state is constitutionally required to backfill the difference between revenue that is raised locally um, and what is needed to educate students. And so that error, as Brenda pointed out, forces the state to spend disproportionately more of our state dollars to some of our wealthiest communities, and that subtracts from what would otherwise be available to all districts. Um, and so, you know, to your original question, Earl, there's there's really no distribution formula, uh, I would argue, that can account for or equalize a revenue system that is as arbitrary and regressive as Colorado's property tax system. And so the solution that House Bill 1164 proposes is critically important, and I would argue that we should be hopefully enacting this fix first. But at the same time, we also need to be having a conversation about how to better spend our state funding that we have now, and how can we more equitably uh, distribute any uh, new revenue that could be generated as a result of House Bill 1164 if it is found to be constitutional. Okay, I, I just want to make certain that I understand what this piece of legislation uh, will do is the various communities that can pro that can afford the entirety of the cost of their K through 12 will have an opportunity to do that and fully fund it if their property values and the economic, uh, I guess, condition of the community warrants it or allows it. For those communities that don't have the economic power, the their values of their properties, if they don't have the the ability, economic ability to raise the uh, monies for schooling, then the state would then provide the funding from sources that they have. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, that is a fair statement. You know, so as I said, like the state always looks at what is the amount of revenue that is generated from local property tax. If that amount falls short of what the School Finance Act says that district needs to educate their students, the state is required to uh, backfill that difference. And but that so, backfilling of difference, this legislation will create, uh, you used the word, I 
feel uncomfortable using it because you know, how do you define it? You use the word equality with regards to the funding available for schooling based upon the economic potential of that particular community. Is that fair? Yeah, I think what we're, you know, I think what we're trying to get back to is more of a a uniform property tax rate that applies to all taxpayers and across all school districts. Like it shouldn't matter what school district you live in, what your base property tax rate is. This this bill will not get us 100% of the way there, but it gets us a lot closer. And frankly, you know, our, our system now, it really is a system with no intentional policy design behind it. Like it's it's purely based on what was happening with assessed values in your school district between 1993 and 2007. And we would argue like that's not a good system and we should be trying to work towards a better one. Well, they're trying to get back to a system that, that has more of a... Uh... Uh, I, I guess uh, closer to the 27 mil levy. And Brenda, do you agree with the incremental approach uh, to reforming the school finance system, which is being suggested? I agree with Leslie that we we need, we need to address this revenue system and try to get to a level playing field where there can be some some logical rationale for why certain districts have you know a certain level of property tax. Um, what I would like to have seen, though, was that this bill be paired with another bill that was addressing the school funding formula. I think that this is a missed opportunity to have a bigger conversation for how to fix the entire system. And I think there is, you know, it's, policy change is hard, and I think doing incremental changes is one approach. I think another approach could also be trying to strike some type of grand bargain, which I know, you know, some state senators have, have wanted that as well to say, you know, we're going to, we agree to this revenue fix, but we also want to make sure that we're spending those revenues in a way that makes sense and is most effective for our students. So we're also going to address that part of the equation as well. And so, you know, that isn't happening yet. I mean, there's still time in the legislative session. So, you know, maybe that could still happen. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about the allocation in a session in a second, but Leslie, I want to go back to the question you brought it up with regards to uh, Tabor. And uh, there's a question of uh, uh, constitu- you know, the constitutionality of the bill. And what is the question the legislature has sent to the state Supreme Court about the constitutionality of the bill? What is the question? So House Bill 1164 really raises a fundamental constitutional question about Tabor and about voter approval. And so the bill forms the basis of what is called an interrogatory that has been sent to the Colorado Supreme Court to assess the constitutionality of the mill levy corrections that House Bill 1164 proposes. So I'll try to give a quick history lesson here. One of the things that the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights did was it imposed a cap on tax revenue that would not allow school district revenues to grow at a faster rate each year than inflation plus enrollment growth. So after Tabor's passage, if local property tax revenues were going to exceed the Tabor cap because of increases in property values, then the mill levy would be reduced um, to keep local revenues within that cap. The two types of communities where we really saw this happen, um, where there was high growth in property wealth during that time, were communities with oil and gas development and some of our booming resort communities. And so this is now where we also have the lowest tax rates. However, and this is something that that Brenda mentioned at the beginning, between 1994 and 2002, 
we had the vast majority of school districts in the state. So 174 of 178 school districts chose to permanently waive Tabor's revenue limitations. So they went to their voters and they were they passed successful uh, what are called debrucing elections, which is kind of a nod to Tabor's author, Douglas Bruce. Despite those successful debrucing elections, the Department of Education acted as if they had not occurred when they were calculating the local property tax share of school finance. And so they continued to require school districts to reduce their mill levies to remain under Tabor's revenue limits, even though, you know, theoretically they were no longer subject to those limits after debrucing. Um, and so these mill levy reductions compounded over time. In 1993, which was the year after Tabor took effect, school district mill levies averaged about 38 mills. You know, fast forward to now, and the reductions that were required by CDE after those debrucing elections have dropped the average school district mill levy to 19 today. And so as mills declined and we had less revenue supporting school finance from local property tax, that meant that the state was on the hook for um, more and more of the share of K-12 costs. And that also meant that, you know, most of the backfill was going to some of those wealthy and fast growing districts. And then, you know, keep in mind that another provision of Tabor says that any tax increase requires voter approval. So once a mill went down, it couldn't go back up again. 2007, the General Assembly recognized that these reductions were inequitable and unsustainable. And so they passed legislation that basically froze the mill levies in place for debruce districts. And so that means that we've had this patchwork of property tax rates in place ever since. Two years after that, in 2009, the Colorado Supreme Court held that the mill levy freeze was constitutional, that the legislature could do that. Um, and they further found that the um, mill levy reductions that had happened over time were erroneous. And that was in a ruling in a case called Mesa Board of County Commissioners v. State. So House Bill 1164 kind of picks up where that ruling left off and institutes a remedy for those erroneous reductions without requiring additional voter approval. Um, it's a pretty short and simple bill. It just directs the Department of Education to implement a correction plan to gradually increase mill levies um, at a rate of no more than one mil per year in districts that are below a certain level. And the case that the accompanying resolution makes is that voters already approved higher mill levies in the 1980s and early, or 1990s, I should say, and early 2000s when they held those debrucing elections, but those elections were not honored by CDE. And so now it is time to fix that mistake. And so that is sort of the case that the bill and the resolution make together uh, to the Supreme Court. I, I guess, uh, Brenda, are there lingering questions uh, that you want to add uh, with regards to the constitutionality here of, of this? Thank you. Yeah, you know, Leslie did a great job explaining the history and the question that's before the state Supreme Court. I mean, I just think it's a really interesting question that's before them. And I think that uh, you know, while CDE, the Department of Education, perhaps did make an error, they were, you know, they were, there's language within the School Finance Act that specifically holds districts to Tabor. And so CDE didn't believe that part had been waived and that they were still beholden to that. And so, you know, they, the, what the 
bill in 20, 2007 did, as Leslie mentioned, was to really specifically direct CDE to say, no, you, you don't have to abide by the School Finance Act provision. They waived that. They waived revenue limitations. They can now keep those limitations. But, you know, CDE did have uh, direct districts to ratchet down their mills. And so resetting those mills is an increase, you know, an effective increase in taxes. And so under Tabor right now, I mean, a pretty straightforward reading is that increases in taxes require voter, voter approval. So this is a unique circumstance, of course, as Leslie just explained the whole history of this. So you know, I think the Supreme Court has you know, both kind of those sides to weigh and to consider. Okay, just to make certain all of us are on the same page, and I appreciate the in-depth explanations. So if this, uh, what you're hoping is for this legislation to be effective, is that it will not be subject to Tabor. Is, is that fair? I think that, um, you know, Tabor, this does not, this legislation does not change Tabor in any way. And, you know, I'm I, I suggesting would, it, I'm not suggesting it change it. This Tabor doesn't, uh, would not be something that would impact this legislation and it's uh, the changes of mill levies. Yep, that's right. Because what we're trying to say here is that we understand that there is a requirement in Tabor that any tax increase should be approved by voters. But we're also trying to make the case that for mill levies to increase, voter approval should not be required here because that approval was already given. When districts held their debrucing elections, that was essentially voters approving a higher property tax rate. And then there was a mistake made in how the Tabor revenue limit continued to apply to districts even after those elections happened. And so, you know, the question to the Supreme Court is, do you agree with that? And is there a way that the legislature and, and the Department of Education can have some authority to fix this structural problem in our school finance system without individual districts having to go back to their voters and ask another question of them? I think I'm catching on here, but uh, not all of the school districts have debruced, right? Not all of them have, almost all of them have. We had up until this past election, it was 174. And then in the last election, we had Cherry Creek School District and Colorado Springs District 11 debruce as well. So there's only two districts that have not debruced locally. And I will, you know, I will point out, I think that's a really important point, Earl, because in those school districts, the revenue limit under Tabor technically still applies. And so when their assessed values are increasing and they're, they're bumping up against the Tabor cap, in those districts, their mill levy can actually continue to go down, and it does go down. So we've seen that happen up until last year. We are seeing it happen regularly in both Cherry Creek and Steamboat School District because they're they're both districts that are experiencing a lot of property value growth. That's a really important point to make. Okay, well, let, let's get to the bill and as it stands and what it looks like with regards to revenues. If this bill is constitutional and is enacted, it is projected to raise $91.7 million in the first year and more in the following years. Uh, who gets uh, hit most by the increases in taxes, Brenda? Um, so the small, so small rural districts are, there's about 17 that will see their mills increase by at least 10 mills, and some will see their increases of 15 to 17 mills. Uh, the Most of the Denver metro area districts have are close to 27, so taxpayers might see their mills go up by about one to two mills. There are higher property values in the Denver metro area, of course, so a one mill increase could be substantial still. 
Uh, one mill is about $7.15 for every $100,000 in home value. So, so your argument and the way you presented it was the ones that will have the highest increase in mill levies are not necessarily the areas that have the highest property values. So the actual dollar impact is relatively small, even though the mill increase suggested it would be higher. Do, I, do we understand that correctly? Yes, that's likely to be true. Again, it's a, it's a pretty big, diverse list of rural districts. Um, but yes, for the most part, you aren't going to see home values you know, in main, in main coast that are similar to Denver. Uh, so it's, they would have a lower net in, or total increase, but a higher mill increase. Well, let me take Denver for a second, Brenda, if I may. We've had a 15% to 20% increase in valuations in Denver in the last year. So with the mill levy that's there, uh, would I expect that the mill levy would be constant or maybe an increase? Uh, what, let's assume it's constant. But eventually, I would have a 15 to 20% increase in my property taxes, and that would be beneficial to the uh, Denver public school system? Yes, as your home value itself goes up and your property taxes are you know, tied to your home value, then yes, your your taxes would, would continue to go up. But that, I mean, that would be the case under your current mill, mills as well, that your property tax is going to well, go up. That's fine. I just wanted, so for places around the state that have had these significant increase in values, like the mountains, Eagle County, the Front Range, they could see themselves having a, quite a bit of an increase in property tax payments over the next uh, three, four years with the significant home value increases, which would hopefully benefit, we would think, the, their school systems. Yes, Den so to give you some perspective, Denver within the first year under this bill, so by increasing their taxes by about a mill, would see an increase in revenue of $21 million. And you can compare that to perhaps um, you know, East Grand, which is going to bring in about 774000 so under a million with one mill. Well, Leslie, how much revenue will be raised when this bill is fully implemented without me uh, muddying the water talking about housing appreciation and property appreciation? How much are we talking about when it's fully implemented? Where will the these additional funds go. It's worth pointing out that uh, full implementation will take a while because the bill proposes that mills would not be able to increase more than one mill per year for districts. And, and as Brenda mentioned, for some districts, they have 10 or 15 mills to go. So it's difficult to project the impact upon full implementation because we know that assessed values of property will change over the next 20 years. But if we used, if we used current assessed values, the estimated amount of new revenue per year is around $290 million. There is a provision in the bill that requires any new revenue that is generated or freed up um, as a result of increasing local property taxes to stay in K-12 education. And so that will mean new revenue for all schools and districts. And that revenue, you know, I would say would, would will be distributed more equitably than it currently is because it will go to all schools and districts instead of subsidizing um, certain communities that have low property tax rates now. That is how, you know, that's how the system works today. Going back to our earlier points about the revenue system versus the formula, you know, I think there's a whole other conversation that we could have about how we would like to see the revenue spent in a better way than just through our current funding formula. But um, the way that the bill is worded now, it would just kind of stay in K-12 education. Since they're not well represented on this call, let's pick on Eagle County. 
So Eagle County has a chance to get their mill levy back up to 27 mills, okay, whatever it is, it's at 4.4. And if I heard you correctly, what I think I heard you say was that they would probably get less of a state allocation in the future if this new revenue uh, system was put in place at the end of when it gets uh, fully implemented. Are we understanding that correctly? So Eagle, um, you know, I would say they're not probably the best example um, under this bill because Eagle currently um, is at 11.6 mills. And um, in the framework for this bill, they would they would only go up to 12.13 mills. So they are not going all the way up to 27 mills. But, you know, essentially what what will happen, even with that, you know, it's about a half a mill, I think, that they have to increase. Um, that is more local property tax revenue that will stay with Eagle Schools. And it will mean that current state share that is going to Eagle County now and sort of subsidizing their lower tax rate will instead go to other school districts in the state. Okay, that's the leveling that you talked about before. Yeah. It sounds like the extra revenues could have an impact on improving outcomes for students. Brenda, you've written rather extensively for us in reports about uh, outcomes for students and various alternatives. And and uh, give us your insight, if you would, please, as to how these revenues might impact uh, hopefully improving the outcome uh, of our students' uh, uh, ability to learn and then going on for further education, if it's appropriate. Thanks. Yeah, I think this bill has opportunity to bring in some extra revenue. And so uh, the question we really were trying to pose in this report was where are these revenues going to be spent? They have to stay in K-12, as Leslie mentioned, but what, how will they be allocated? And, you know, the hope is that it will be more equitably, but the legislation doesn't say that. It just says they'll stay in in K-12. And so I think there's a real call to action to ensure that these funds don't just go back through the same funding formula we currently use now, which won't, I don't personally believe would change a whole lot of how things are done, how business is done currently. But I think there's an opportunity to take the revenue that is gained through this legislation and say, how can we allocate to, to the districts that need it most and to the students who need it most? So really looking at you know, supporting our English language learners, our students in poverty, our students with disabilities and making sure that they are getting that targeted funding that they need to be successful in their you know, personal education careers. So I, you know, again, I think that it's just funneling this through the same revenue or same funding formula is not going to really change anything. But if we can think about how to spend that money in a, in a more effective way, then we could potentially see improvements for students. Um, and then I think it also has to be considered in the broader context of our school finance system. And we've talked a lot about our um, property tax system, you know, we, and our, under the School Finance Act, we haven't talked a lot about the mill levy override system, which is layered up, layered on that, and essentially districts can vote to increase revenues that stay in their district. So you have some districts that have voted to increase school funding, others have not. So you have another kind of layer of inequitable funding. And I think, you know, before we try not to go into that rabbit hole, but just to say that this extra pot of money, whether it's 290 million or more, could also potentially go to those districts that perhaps don't have high levels of property wealth and haven't been able to get millibee overrides. So they're just at a lower level of funding overall. And so I think there's a lot of creative ways you could think about spending this money to really have a meaningful impact on students. Brenda, I, I, I want to push you and Leslie for a second because I have read your report. And if I remember things correctly and what you said here today, this would create about 190,000, 190 million more 
uh, in property taxes than we've had before. And it would somehow be reallocated and be more of a level playing field. But we have 288 million that's allocated, if I remember your report correctly, in addition to this. So isn't this just an addition to what's already being allocated by the state? So yeah, this is so this is just an increase. So we're saying the two hundred ninety. This is a hundred. This is a hundred ninety million dollar increase. It would be about two hundred and ninety million in local revenue that would be increased under this bill. So that's in addition okay. to our current funding system. So okay, two hundred ninety, two hundred ninety, and what is the in addition to what we're already paying? How does this money help resolve learning in the state and the? graduation rate of our students, or are we just going to put the money out there the same way we have and somehow expect better results? We're looking at the 2020 to 2021 school year. Our state sources of K-12 funding were about $4.2 billion. That was about 58% of the of the grand total. Local sources, which would include property tax, what we're talking about here was about $3.1 billion, um, or about 42% of the total. What uh, we didn't talk about here was uh, the budget stabilization factor, which is kind of this annual cut that's made every year to education since the last recession. The amount of that cut for this school year was more than a billion dollars. And if you add it up over time, you know, it's about it's more than nine billion dollars that we have not been able to. um, And that's state dollars that we have not been able to spend on our schools and students across the state. So two hundred ninety million dollars in the grand scheme is not, you know, it it is real money. Um, It doesn't solve our school, our school funding problem by any means. Um, but it is a way that we get, I would, I would say, closer to equity in where that money is coming from. And then I think the question is, like, how do we also ensure that there's some equity and how those dollars are distributed? My point, I believe everybody else that will be listening to this podcast, is uh, there may be equity in, in, uh, with regards to the dollars that you're talking about. But I think what we're more interested in is how do we get more students to graduate and how do we get more students to be at the grade level they have to be as they go through the educational system and how with this additional 5% because it comes down to 5% of the or more of the total budget that we're asking through property taxes, how will that be allocated so that we can hopefully feel that when we write that property tax check, it's, hey, this is going for not only the education of our grandchildren and children, but it's also going in a way that it's going to help the state become even better because we have a better educated populace than we did before I wrote the check. That's a really important point, Earl, because we know that funding is necessary, but it's not sufficient for providing high quality educational experiences for all kids. What matters even more is is how the money is spent. And so, for example, we have ample evidence at this point of the link between when we make targeted investments that are based on student learning needs and improved outcomes for those students. So if we were going to make a recommendation on how we could spend this money, you know, we would say invest significantly more of our state dollars and things like supports and interventions for our students living in poverty, our emerging bilingual students, our uh, students with unique learning needs, for example, as opposed to you know, distributing dollars based on district characteristics, which is largely what we do now. You know, we send a lot of 
money to our school districts through something called the cost of living factor. And that is totally removed from, you know, what we know that students actually need in the classroom. So, um, you know, I, I would be curious if um, what Brenda thinks about that, but that's what, what we would say. Brenda, you spend a lot of time on the effectiveness of education. Uh, you've got 5% more of my money now. How do you think we ought to, what are the top two or three priorities in allocating it around the state? Yes, I would agree with Leslie on that. I mean, I think that's spot on that we need to think about what our students actually need and what families need to support those students. And, you know, right now we're, we're funneling money through districts based on district characteristics and not really based on what individual students need. And I think our whole system really needs to shift to being more student focused all around. And so I think that's also, you know, my kind of closing remarks would be around having you know, broader conversation about how we fix this education system to truly be you know, a student focused. And that requires not just addressing the revenue side, but also addressing the formula side. And so, you know, I just hope that this bill and that further conversations continue to, to think on that. Brenda, Leslie, thank you both for your time and your insights on this topic. I couldn't think of more well-informed people than the two of you to talk about this and answer the questions we're so lucky. I mean, and thank you for your dedication in learning of the topic and giving us your insights. I hope that the policymakers will take time to listen to your perspectives and come to the table to solve the education finance problems. Um, any final words you want to leave us with? Just, I, I just really appreciate the conversation and, and Brenda and CSI for really taking a deep dive into this issue because it's a, it's a really important one. So thanks. Thanks, Leslie. Great. Yes, thank you for having us today, Earl. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.